Welcome back to the 411 Podcasting Network. I am your host, Larry Zonka, and this is episode 18 of the 411 on Wrestling Podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and YouTube, as well as the 411 Mania site. Please subscribe and share us around on social media. And if you have the time, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. Today, I am joined by my good friend, the returning Steve Cook. Steve, how are you? How's it going, sir? It's not bad, man. It's uh, raining and thunderstorming outside right now. And raining and thunderstorming. Kind Sounds of like a couple of days ago here. We got just rain right now. Something stupid just popped in my head, Larry. Consider, I mean, considering the theme of the, today's show, I'm a little disappointed that this wasn't the 17th episode of the 401 on Wrestling Podcast. So we could call it episode X7. Because that, that, that would have been time period, fitting. right? Yeah. That would have been fitting. Mm. <laughs> we got too much stuff to talk about, man. Yeah. But uh, yeah, today's show is a uh, kind of doing a special themed show today. Uh, we are going to look back on and kind of talk about and examine the final episode of Monday Nitro. And kind of to start off before we get into that, Steve, uh, just general thoughts. What was your feeling on being a fan during the Monday Night Wars? The Monday Night Wars came along at the, at the time for me where I think for, for most of us, maybe not everybody, but I think for most of us, the peak of our wrestling fandom, the stuff that we remember most fondly is uh, from the time when we, when we're kids and when we're teenagers. I was 12 years old when uh, Hulk Hogan dropped a big leg on Randy Savage and joined the NWO. So 12, 13, 14, 15. That's when I was uh, watching Raw Nitro every night. That's when uh, wrestling got popular again. That's when kids at school started talking about Goldberg and Austin and NWO and all that stuff, which was great for me because I had been, I was still a fan. I became a fan in 1990 and I stuck with it. So I stuck through a lot of bad stuff. A lot of stuff that is not cool to be watching. You know, the, the, the job era, the WWF, where everybody had jobs. All that lame nonsense that people made fun of me for watching. And when you look back, you kind of can see, well, yeah, you know, they kind of had a point. <laughs> that stuff kind of sucked. So I, you kind of understand why you, you got made fun of. But then once this stuff started going down, once the Attitude Era hit, NWO, all that stuff, it was cool to be a wrestling fan again. And it's exciting, too. It was in the early days of the, of the Internet, the World Wide Web, when we all had our modems, we had our dial-up stuff going on. And there's just a different feeling than even that, than especially now. is a little tough to get wrestling news, but it was at the same point where the IWC was kind of starting to blow up. And we'd, we'd read about all news, about the guys jumping back and forth between WDF and WCW and ECW. So it was just a fantastic fan, time to be a young wrestling fan. And I and I look and I look back to it fondly, and I think it's still an aspect of of the business that we've missed since the Night Wars air, ended, where we don't have uh, pe- all the chaoticness, people jumping back and forth. We might be getting a little back into it right now, maybe, but uh, there's some interesting stuff going on right now. But it, it was just it was just a great time to be a fan, and also I think it helped that I was younger. And while I, I obviously knew it was a work, I wasn't as uh, into, I wasn't as deep into it. I wasn't like an internet wrestling columnist. I wasn't uh, in tune with everything going on. So 
little bit of mystery there helped as well. So just great times. Yeah, just uh, going back to that. Yeah, it, it was always funny back in the day where you had like the, uh, you know, you didn't have as much of the websites as you had the, um, like the AOL chats and stuff like that. And th- there was always like the big rumors of so and so is going to jump and Yokozuna is going to be the third man and <laughs> stuff like. I mean, just like the wackiest shit out there, you know. It was like and like and people bitch about like the quote unquote news these days. Mm-hmm. It's like you guys have no fucking clue what shit was like in like '96 <laughs> and '97. Man, I mean, so much, so many people jumped and never jumped or jumped different places. Just, ugh. it was. But it's part of the. It was part of the fun too. All the nonsense news went on, and now everybody gets a, everybody gets all bent out of shape whenever something ends up not happening. But I, it's part of the fun, to me. Yeah, but that was uh that was always interesting, and uh I was older than you during the time. Um. A lot of the Monday Night War stuff uh, I was in college for. Uh, early on, I uh, I was an RA in an off-campus dorm, so uh, I uh, gladly took Monday Night Duty because it involved sitting in the lobby and pretty much doing nothing but signing in the occasional person. So I got to sit there with the TV and fucking sit in the couch and watch watch Raw and Nitro flick, flipping back and forth and um. Then uh, the next year, next couple of years, I uh, lived with a bunch of my friends, and uh, the cool thing was is they started getting into wrestling, and it turned into we would watch Raw and Nitro, and we would sit there and we'd order the pay per views, do pay per view parties and stuff. And yeah, as a pure fan, time just a blast because a lot of my early wrestling fandom was either by myself or with my brother. Uh, my brother and grandmother, actually. My grandma helped uh, introduce me into wrestling a lot, watching the Saturday morning stuff. She lived with us in her last years. And uh, her and my grandfather actually went to uh, studio wrestling a lot in Pittsburgh. Hosted oh, by, wow. Hosted by Bill Cardell. And, uh, yeah. I've been back with the Bruner days? Yeah, yeah. Oh, dude. Big Bruno fan. Larry Zabisco was a piece of shit. And Hulk Hogan was a fraud. Yeah. From her words to God's ears, you know? I love I mean, it. But, uh, oh, yeah, she was, uh, it was awesome. Because, yeah, she lived with us in the final years. And uh, just watching her get fired up for early morning wrestling on Saturday. Oh, God, dude. She hated the fucking heels. Mm. Son, son of a bitch. You know? <laughs> just, I mean, it was just so funny. And then, um, like, with my brother, we watched a lot of 605 on TBS. Uh, and then, like, there was, like, a Worldwide would air at, like, 11 at night on Saturdays. And we'd watch Saturday night's main event. Um, again, more of an NWA fan growing up. But, uh, yeah, it was just really cool. That was the early fan. And then, you know, so I'm in college now, and I have friends that are actually into it. And it was just, yeah, it was just a fun. Because we were sitting there on, like, Monday nights with, like, six or seven people. And, you're you know, you're flipping back and forth and catching everything and just... Yeah, good time as a fan. Um, you know, you look at Monday Nitro, and, you know, obviously there's a lot of jokes about WCW's downfall and all the mistakes they made. But I also think a lot of people forget that Nitro was a revolutionary program because whether you like how the Monday Night Wars turned out or what things became, Nitro changed the format of wrestling. 
It wasn't just yeah, the interviews yeah. and hype packages and squash matches with the occasional okay match between stars. They were putting on big matches, matches with stars all the time, almost pay-per-view quality shows at times, and it changed everything and it forced the businesses a little change. Now, you can argue if that was for the better or not, because I think in some ways the Monday Night Wars did a lot of damage to wrestling programming, and things just never recovered afterwards. But that's also kind of a different argument for a different time, but... Like I said, people want to not watch. It's it's to do that in some aspects. We can talk about the NWO thing not working out, resolving properly, building stars properly. But again, overall Monday Night Wars as a fan, total blast. You know, it's just like it felt like appointment viewing every Monday, Steve. I mean, you couldn't miss it. You either had to watch one or record the other, or you had to flip back on. Yeah, I think that's another aspect where the the lack of lack of technology back then. You know, we didn't have DVR. We had our we had like VCRs and stuff like that. But back in those days, you couldn't just you you didn't feel right if you would tape one and watch the other. And sometimes you just didn't have the means in your household to do that. So you had to flip back and forth to see what was going on each show. And if you flipped over too long, you might miss something on the other show. You might. Like, you might have missed, like, oh, shit, there's Ric Flair doing something. Or, oh, shit, Austin came out and did something. It was just, it was part of the part of the fun of being a wrestling fan back in those, back in those days. You never quite knew what was going to happen next. And to your point about, you know, Nitro definitely revolutionized what a TV show, what a wrestling TV, TV show could be. If you go back and watch those Raws from 93, 94, 95, there's some good stuff. There's also a lot, a lot of bad stuff. Just a lot of jobber matches, a lot of guys that aren't very good, a lot of, a lot of just riffraff out there in between hype packages and things like that. And they had to step their game up because they went out there the first week. They dropped Hogan on you. They had Hogan versus Luger in the second week. This went balls to the wall right from the start. And you can kind of see the impact today. And you can kind of see in WWE product right now, as a matter of fact, because you got to have three-hour Raw every week. And they feel like they have to trot out big matches with big stars every single week. And the problem in a lot of those cases are it's the same big stars going at week after week after week. And uh, it gets to the point where you just you just don't really give a crap. And uh, I don't know if we want to spend this whole show uh, knocking the current product. But I'm just uh, I'm just pointing out that's kind of the effect that the uh, the Monday Night Wars had on Raw. And even SmackDown say to a degree where they just feel like they have to do so much every single week. And it just it speeds along stories. It just it makes things a lot more difficult than it needs to be. Yeah. So again, you know, and and again, like Steve, so it's not the it's not the goal of this right now to knock on the current product, but again, I think people look back on the Monday night wars with a, a lot of rose colored glasses, everything was better. And, you know, old school fans do that, too, to where, oh, back in my day, everything was great and blah, blah, blah. And it's not always the case. And, again, like I said, you can make the argument that the Monday Night Wars also did a lot of damage as far as the way things are, are run, like Steve just said. So kind of moving on, Steve. Initial reaction when you found out WWE is buying WCW, right before we dig deep into that, it's like, for those that don't know, 
WCW, Time Warner decided they were going to sell WCW. They were losing money. Uh, they lost like $60 million in the last year or something like that. And it just, there were no returns. And as much as Ted Turner loved his wrestling, he didn't have the control anymore. And Time Warner and uh, specifically Brad Siegel wanted to dump the product. Now, it looked like Eric Bischoff had brokered a deal with Fusion Media yeah, and yeah. they had put money together and they were going to buy the product. And apparently that deal was extremely close to being finalized. Uh, Bischoff had a secret deal, basically. He had um, Don Callis was going to come in and do commentary. He had things lined up. And then Brad Siegel dropped the hammer that we'll sell you WCW, but there is going to be no TV time slot with it. And with no TV time slots, it wasn't worth it to Eric Bischoff for Fusion because they had no guaranteed TV time, which left the doors open for Vince McMahon to stroll in for about $5 million to pick up the trademarks, intellectual property, a handful of talent, and the vastly large video library, which they're making bank on to this day, thanks to the net. One of the what? best battles Vince ever made. Oh, Jesus Christ, yes. <laughs> but um, just initial reaction when you heard WWE is buying WCW. I remember, you know, there was all kinds of speculation about what's going to go down. You heard the Bischoff rumors. There's even rumors that the FSX, SFX company is going to buy it a while before that, and it never quite fell through. And you had heard a number is not, not $5 million. You heard like You heard like $300 million. You heard yeah, big, big, money. big, big money for this company, which would only make sense because it was the number two wrestling company in the world at the time and had so many stars under contract. And it, it could have been salvaged. I, I know they did a lot of bad things towards the end there. You could always, fit, you could always fix it. You could always make the comeback if you, if you just hit the right stuff at the right time. They, had a lot, they still had all these superstars. They had a lot of good young talent, too, which we'll see a lot of these guys on this last Nitro. A lot of good talent there that could have become big things. Had Bischoff bought it, I think there were some guys they had big plans for. But it ended up being WWF, Vince McMahon. And uh, I was I was shocked. I was stunned, quite frankly, because you just don't expect to, you, you don't expect to hear WWF buying WCW. And I'm sure there are probably people that thought it was going to be a, be a good thing. I can be a little negative from time to time, Larry. It's a, it's a true story. And I did not have the faith in the WWF to do much of anything with WCW, to be honest. I, because I've, I, even then, I'd read about how these invasion things had gone before, like when, when Crockett bought the UWF and things like that. And you'd always just see the renegade company get jobbed out and uh, trade like nothing. And that's pretty much what I thought was going to happen to WCW. And, uh, well... I, I was right. Sorry, I was right. What can I say? Yeah, uh, that was one of my one of my first reactions was I was like, I hope this doesn't end up like the EWF thing, because it's like, yeah, th there was so much potential with that one too, and unfortunately, it was just uh, Crockett bought it, brought in the talent, put his talent over, and then kept some guys, and that was it. Yep. yep. But um, during this time, I um. Like, I used to listen to the um, the Wrestling Observer Live on IATA Live every day. 
the uh, IATA, for those of you that don't know, was a big internet radio deal at the time. And they threw out a lot of money for various uh, radio shows and tons of sporting shows and stuff. And, uh, you know, good on Dave and Brian. They were in early. They made money. And then IATA, like a lot of things, overextended itself and ended up shutting down. Um, that happens a lot to, to this day. You see that happening. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of people say, you know, Iyata came along, I think, just way too early. I think it was a really good idea. But um, it's just 2000, 2001, and it's just uh, they didn't know how to monetize it, but they knew how to spend money. <laughs> so, yeah, um, yeah. But I used to listen to that show every day, and then um, it was about a week before it became official, Dave started talking about how he heard that the Bischoff deal was going to fall through. And that, you know, people were getting cold feet on either side or that uh, AOL was changing the terms. And he's like, it's going to be very different what happens, you know, and they kept talking about it. And then all of a sudden it's he dropped the hammer that uh, he's like, unless something drastically changes, you know, WWE's buying the company. And uh, stunned was the first reaction. And uh, I will say I was I didn't think it would work out well, but I won't lie. In 2001, I was a little more optimistic and I'm sitting there thinking I'm like, and again, this is going to sound really bad in hindsight, but I'm thinking, how can you fuck this up? <laughs> it's, it's it's the dream scenario we've thought about for years. Yeah. Yep. Goldberg and Austin. Yeah. You know, yeah. It's like all this shit, you know, it's like. You think about all the guys they had, you know, Booker T and the Raw. I mean, just various shit that you could go down the list and think about whatever it was at the time. And it's just, you thought to yourself, it's like, it seems like a no-brainer. It seems like it would be a success. And I sat there and I, I again, I'm cautiously optimistic, but I was excited. Because all I could think of was, we're going to get, like, years of all this stuff we never thought we'd get and we didn't we did, we did. And, and i think was, another th another thing that i worried about at the, at the time as well i knew that there are people like you and me that watched both you know we we'd flip back and forth but there were people that only watched one there were wf fans that had given up on dcw a long time ago and there's dcw fans that never watched wf they're, 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 they still identify with they still thought DCW, even though it really wasn't that Southern Wrestling Company anymore by the time that 2001 rolled around. They still thought of DCW as their Southern Wrestling Company. There was to them it was Jim Crockett Promotions. It was all the guys that uh, as a Nature Boy and Harley Race and all those guys he'd run down during the telecast. It, it was still their old school wrestling. And when that old school wrestling went away. They didn't flip the channel that day off. They're like, okay, cool. See y'all later. Peace out. And with the DF fans not having the high thought of DCW, that is going to be a problem. Hence the invasion you can see because, so are we, are we now supposed to buy into these DCW guys all of a sudden? And you had the feeling that with egos being what they are, DF was going to be hard pressed to try to make DCW seem like is on their level. Well, they certainly didn't on the during the simulcast when they didn't on this show. That's for sure. Carried the company. I mean, <laughs> Jesus, yeah, it's a uh, yeah. I just uh, and obviously part of the problem with 
the quote-unquote invasion angle was the fact that WWE, when they bought the company, only got certain talents, and it wasn't the big-name talents. Because the big names... Guys, I remember. It was 24, wasn't it? Uh, something like that. I could, I could tell you right here in a second. But uh, the, the problem was is you had guys like Sting and Goldberg and all the really perceived big names that were under AOL Time Warner contracts that were guaranteed. And Vince wasn't going to buy them out because he didn't want to upset his pay structure. And so basically, you know, they could accept the buyout for pennies on the dollar or they could just sit at home and make that sweet AOL money. So yeah, um, as of the time that WWE bought the company. The contracted talents they got were Lance Storm, Chuck Palumbo, Sean O'Hare, Mark Jindrak, Mike Awesome, Elix Skipper, Shane Helms, Shannon Moore, Stacy Keebler, Chavo Guerrero Jr., Mike Sanders, Hugh Morris, Sean Stasiak, Kaz Hayashi, uh, Jimmy Wang Yang, and Billy Kidman. And these guys were picked up because they had uh, the 90-day cycles, which means they could be cut at the end of... Uh, 90 days at any time, and the WWE can renegotiate their contracts with ease. Yeah, so, yeah. there's some good names, uh, there's some good talent on that list. And you can say now that, well, okay, that guy's really good, or that guy's really good. But in 2001, I'm going to say that none of those names are moving the needle. Uh, yeah. Yeah, they, I mean, was Lance Storm probably your most? Uh, <laughs> did he win the most championships at that bunch at that point? Possibly. Yeah, I mean, I mean, if you're just looking at that list, yeah, I mean, Lance Storm. I mean, I love Lance Storm, and no disrespect, but Lance Storm is the biggest star out of that group with ease. And he'd admit that's a bad idea. Yeah, so I mean, it's so you you don't have your Stings and Goldbergs, Hall, Nash, Hogan, Flair, and stuff like that. You don't have any of those names that I think most fans would look at as the quote-unquote stars of WCW. Well, even Jeff Jarrett. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, no Luger, no DDP. I mean, so you don't have any of those guys. You just have guys. So that was the first big misstep. And so now we will look back, Steve, on the final edition of WCW Monday Nitro, held in the Redneck Riviera of Panama City, as Vince McMahon would call it. You know and, what? Vince yeah. was ripping on them for running their show in Panama City Beach, Florida. And he was he in has, fucking Cleveland. Yeah, they're in fucking Cleveland, exactly. <laughs> like, that's a lot better. Come on now. I know, Jesus. But uh, the show starts off with the uh, infamous Vince McMahon opening promo noting that he had bought his competition and now owns WCW. He will address the fans and superstars tonight in a special simulcast. What is the fate of WCW, Steve? The fate of WCW is in my hands. And, and with hindsight being 2020, you could see the uh, why the invasion is going to fail right there. Yeah. So we go to... About Vince. <laughs> So we go to Panama City. Tony Schiavone and Scott Hudson welcome us to the show, hyping it as a landmark uh, event in the history of our great sport. 
as Tony Schiavone always does. And we start off with Ric Flair cutting a fucking Ric Flair promo. Yeah, buddy. The CEO, if you will. Ric Flair comes out, and he's just, you know, say what you will about Ric Flair, but he, he was still awesome in 2001. The man could still talk. And just, he fucking crushes it. It's just typical Ric Flair, and I won't even try to do a Ric Flair impersonation, but he comes out, and he's just, you know, did I hear Vince McMahon say he was going to hold this company in his hands? He's like, are you going to try to hold Jack Briscoe, Dory Funk, Harley Race, the Road Warriors, Sting, Luger, the Steiners, Bagwell, me and Steamboat? Does that mean you're going to hold us in the palm of your hands? You know, and he's just fucking, he's Ric Flair. And yep, you yep. can't fucking say anything else because there are no others. And he just, he's crushing this promo, talking about that, you know, bullshit on your, on your stuff, Vince. He's like, you know, a little trivia for you. When, uh, in 1981, when you were trying to become an announcer, your dad was voting for me to become the world champion. Um, yeah, he just, he fires up. He's Ric Flair. It's awesome. And then he just, <laughs> then like he goes off the rails, which is still Ric Flair. That's why he That's why he He's like, you, you can't hold us in your hands. We bleed. We sweat. When was the last time you went for an hour? Cut yourself five times and bled for 45 minutes. <laughs> and it's like, for anybody else, it sounds insane, but it's Rick Flair. <laughs> it's amazing because he said in a, if, since then, interviews, he was so happy when this company closed. He, he, yeah. he, was, he was very happy this whole day when the company closed down because, you know, he was he was all upset about the way Eric Bischoff treated him and yada, yada, yada. He did a damn good job of hiding it here, I'll tell you that much. Well, that's the thing, though. I mean, what say what you will about Ric Flair, but the man is a performer, and, you know, they told him to go out there and cut a promo on the deal, and he did. You know? I, mean, I also I also love the list. When you, you ran down the list, uh, Jack Briscoe, Dory Funk, Carly Race, the Road Warriors, Sting, Luger, the Steiners, and then Bagwell. Yeah, I know. Wait a minute. <laughs> like something something's not, something doesn't quite fit in here if you ask me. But I don't know. It's a good knife for, for Buff Bagwell, actually. He got put over in this promo. And then later on he got put over too. He wasn't even there. <laughs> yeah, but uh just a great Ric Flair promo to uh start things off. And he closes out challenging Sting, his greatest rival, to one last match. And uh that would end up being the final Monday Nitro match ever. Dude. Uh, so I just want to point out this sign that I saw in the crowd. It said, uh, Vince, first XFL, now WCW. <laughs> You're a dumbass. <laughs> there you have it. And then the, the funny thing there. is, here we are in 2019, and the XFL is about to come back. Well, May WCW's coming next. <laughs> Bigger mistake. I, I think there's an alternate universe, actually. I, was, I went on this tangent there a week in the botch, the, the botch column. Where Johnny Gar- it, you, you saw the Indians game where Johnny Gargano is listed as the WCW champion. Yeah. I think there's an alternate universe where WCW was NXT. I think that's what happens there in some alternate universe. Yeah, I don't. Uh, Jesus, yeah, it's a, it sort of feels like, but it's a, it's it's crazy. But yeah, looking back to player promo, great. And then we started off. It was a Night of Champions theme to where all the championships are on the line. Started off with U.S. champion Booker T defeating 
world champion Scott Steiner to become both champions. Your thoughts, Steve? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> they went uh, they went out there right away, didn't they? They, just, <laughs> they got their stuff done. They got out. Uh, I believe Steiner had some kind of injury during this time with his leg, if I'm not mistaken. Like, uh, I think he had a bad he had a bad foot thing going on. Yeah, he but, was dealing with the uh, the nerve issue, the drop foot. You could tell, like, I think it was his left foot, you could tell, where his, he was obviously hobbled. But he was still out there. He was working pretty darn good for a guy basically on one leg. And uh, if you're going to have one guy to be the champion for a, a prospective relaunch to ACW, and it's not going to be Scott Steiner because he's been collecting his money, Booker T is as good a choice as anybody on that roster. If it's not, you know, if it's not going to be one of the superstars like your your Scott Steiners, your Goldbergs, or whoever, Booker T is on that next level, and he had he had the uh, kind of had the the thing going in the ring. He had a good promo stuff going on at the time. I thought it was all right. I also thought that Booker sold one heck of a Medasia slap there. He <laughs> sold the heck out of that. And, and the the other high point I thought was Steiner trying to kill him at the lead pipe. That was pretty good. It's like wow, damn, going all out here. Yeah, uh, the match was just over five minutes. Uh, like Steve said, they worked hard. They didn't have a lot of time. Crowd was into it. Crowd liked Booker T. You know, the one thing I did forget about was when I was watching this is I forgot about the uh, the little intro before Booker's music, the don't hate the player, hate the game. Yeah, the old oh, the, oh. the Stuart Scott catchphrase, yeah. Yeah, but I totally had forgotten about that just because I hadn't watched any later wcw in a long time but uh yeah booker t won and like you said if he if you weren't gonna have goldberg or anybody like that um booker t was a good choice he was over the fans liked him and it was it was a babyface moment which is what they tried to do for the most part on this show indeed indeed they're trying to have fun trying to have, have a good time and right after that they had the spring breakout video which looked like a fun time it had some girls in bikinis and man, that's another thing we don't see enough of these days. Yeah, we can bring back the girls in bikinis, but we can leave Ricky yes. Rockman in two thousand one. Yeah, we can leave him back there. But the, the girls in bikinis all hyped about ACW is pretty good. Exactly. Next up was a triple threat tag team match for the number one contendership for the, and I'm not joking, people, the WCW Cruiserweight Tag Team Championship. Yeah. Yes, they had, they had Cruiserweight Tag Team titles back in WCW. Obviously, didn't last very long because the company sh- shut down. As long but, as uh, the match, it was just a bit. Yeah. <laughs> but it was the uh, the Young Dragons, Kaz Hayashi and uh, Yun Yang, which later would be Jimmy Wang Yang, versus Three Count of Evan Courageous and Shannon Moore, versus the Filthy Animals, which was Billy Kidman and some unmasked individual wearing horns, which they claimed was Rey Mysterio Jr. <laughs> uh, yeah, I know. It's, uh, it's amazing to believe that the man... <laughs> And went, went without his mask for a little while there. And whenever you saw him without without the mask, he just wasn't the same. I mean, he still had some good moments. I remember when I went to a Nitro back in 1999 Cincinnati, him and Kidman, as a matter of fact, had one of the best matches I ever saw live. It was a damn good piece of business. But uh, really not the same with, when he's uh, going maskless, when he's wearing the camouflage overalls or cargo pants, whatever the hell he's doing. And he nearly botched the finish here in this match, too, but he still managed to keep his balance because, well, still kind of Rey Mysterio. This thing was a goddamn spot fest, Larry. Oh. Yeah, three minutes and 37 seconds. It was six dudes that were told to (laughs) go out and get your shit in, and they they did. did. They did. 
And Tony called a back leg front kick too. Shades of uh, Eric Bischoff there. I, I appreciated that. I think that's a shout out. That, that's that, that's always right up there with the full arm dragon twist. It's like mm. it's not an arm drag; it's an arm ringer. Indeed. But they always call it full arm dragon twist. But yeah, back leg front kick was always a a good one. And young the uh, young dragons and three count were they were both a highlight of later period ICW. They had some kick ass. Uh, and they had they, they at least one layer match on pay per view that was kick ass. And I think they had so several other matches that were just uh, you know top notch. Spot fests, but we like spot fests here, don't we? I like them. Yeah, well, the thing was, too, is, I mean, here's the thing. They didn't have a lot of time. Sometimes you just have to go out and get shit in, and that's okay. Because the winner was going to wrestle later that night. It, you know, and again, like you said, they were trying to have some fun out there. And the they, these guys might not never, they might never be seen again. You don't know. Exactly. <laughs> Evan Courageous was basically never seen again. No, so. he wasn't. Uh, <laughs> Kaz Hayashi went over to Japan, uh, so... Yeah. Chan and Yang kind of hung around for a little bit. Yeah, I mean they they did okay. It was amazing, honestly, when you you look at that group. It's like, you know, Ray's obviously back with the company now. Billy Kidman works backstage. Evan Curry just disappeared. Shannon Moore had a decent run. Went to TNA for a bit. And T's retiring. Kaz Hayashi went to Japan. It was awesome. And then Jimmy Wang Yang actually had like a really long run that most didn't expect, and now runs a party bus. You know, what he actually like, didn't I read somewhere that he's actually one of Vince's favorite wrestlers? Yeah, apparently Vince, Vince really never, liked him. Yeah. yeah, Vince likes guys. He he has a thing where he likes guys, but then he never pushes them. And Jimmy Wang Yang ended up being one of those guys for whatever reason. Yeah, it's it's always funny when you find out guys that Vince liked. It's like you would never expect it. Like he'd like Jimmy Wang. He probably just liked them when he became Jimmy Wang Yang. Because you got the southern accents. Yeah. I, I don't know what nationality <laughs> Jimmy Yang is, but I could just imagine going, Vince, like, look at that Korean playing the Texan. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that would that would be Vince, you know? But uh, you know what the, 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 uh, Jim, the Jimmy Wang Yang thing always reminded me of? I don't know if you ever watched, like, older kung fu movies. Well, what always cracked me up is sometimes, you know, when they do the overdubs, apparently these movies happened in, like, South Japan. Sure. Because, sure. like, they would overdub them. <laughs> they'd be like, Master Joe's coming up the tracks now. I was like, why is this Japanese man? Like, I know it's an English, English overdub, but why is he Southern? It's amazing how the Southern <laughs> portion of every country seems to have that at that time. <laughs> I, know. I know what it is. But, <laughs> no uh, matter where you go, it's too. It's the same, same, uh, same thing. I mean, even in always... Game of Thrones, you can hear the twang from the Southerners. <laughs> But yeah, always cracked me up. The filthy animals win and move on to a title shot later in the evening. Yeah, and then we got to see Vince McMahon uh, make out Trish Stratus. His companion, Trish Stratus. <laughs> yeah, which uh, if you if you want more evidence of Vince, uh, you know, being Vince and completely taking advantage of every situation, there you go, right there, Exhibit A. Yeah, this was during the storyline time where he was feuding with Shane McMahon and. Linda was essentially comatose in a wheelchair. Why was she kind of, Do you remember why she's comatose in a wheelchair? I, I don't remember. Does that matter? Probably not. No. So yeah. next up was the Cruiserweight Championship. Champion Sugar Shane Helms versus Chavo Guerrero Jr. And before we talk about the match, Steve, I do want to say something about Shane Helms. Sure. I honestly think that 2001 Shane Helms, when they, they, they WWE brings him in, completely missed the ball with him. 
Now, I will say that things worked out well for Shane Helms. He ended up with the hurricane gimmick. Worked it till this day until he ended up, he signed with WWE as an agent producer now. But he got a lot of run out of the hurricane thing. But the thing was, is WWE is a company that they embrace branding and a gimmick. You know, the big dog, the boss, all that shit, you know? And 2001, Shane Helms came in with this outstanding package, if you look at it this way. He was the champion. He was Sugar Shane Helms. He had the Sugar Babies dancing him to the ring. He had the Vertebraker theme song. And then he had, like, this whole moveset with cool names that you could have marketed. He had the Nightmare on Helm Street, the Sugar Smack, the Vertebraker. It's like like everything WWE tries to artificially do now with guys. But here in 2001, they had a dude with all this shit built in, and when they bring him in, he's very, very Helms. Well, they have Shane again. Yeah, because we can't have more than one Shane on the roster. Just like Lance Cade had to become Garrison Cade because Lance Storm was right. What was it with those G names, too, whenever they changed somebody's name? There's there's something. Yeah, yeah, Gregory Helms is a gigantic missed opportunity because he had this whole thing going. He would have been a big plan of what he would have been a big part of whatever, whatever Fuse Media or whoever tried to do with WCW. I think they had, I think people had big plans for him. And uh, he might have, uh, he might have suffered in, in part of the fact that they had big plans for him. Because they see this guy coming in, it's like, oh, we got to knock him down a peg or two. So there you go. Um, the hurricane thing did work out in the long run. And he's probably, I mean, he's got a lot of mileage out, out of that gimmick. But one, that's one of the big what ifs right there. If they said you'd stuck around, would Shane Helms have become one of those top guys that he never became? Even though the hurricane was a big deal, he hurricane was never a top draw, never a top of the line deal. But uh, it's uh, something to think about. Yeah, but I, I just think that that was a, a missed opportunity because, like I said, it's like they try to artificially brand guys so badly now. And it's like it just – it never feels organic. And then you had this guy with all the stuff they try to do. And it's like, uh, nope, you're Gregory now. <laughs> this is a solid match right here because, I mean, Sugar Shane had all, had all stuff going on. And uh, Chavo Guerrero, whatever, whatever you can – I mean, I kind of go back and forth with Chavo. I mean, sometimes he's sometimes he's cool. Sometimes he's just eh, kind of meh. But he's always been technically sound. He's always pretty good inside the ring, and he can get a good match out of out of most people. He just well, kind of he the... lacked in some other departments, but he's always pretty good at uh, in the in ring capacity. Well, the, this worked too because this was also long before Chavo became an Eddie parody. Yeah, and he was actually like just working like himself. And Ian Helms had a lot of matches in the closing months of WCW. So, yeah, it's, it's like four and a half minutes. It's a fun little match. Shane Helms retains and uh, then was never Shane Helms again. Because he, he had to be never Shane Helms again. again. <laughs> then we heard, from, we heard from Booker T here for a minute. And I got to tell you, uh, Booker T talked to himself here. This didn't really work for me. And I was better premise. I thought he did a lot better when he was talking to Pamela Paul Shock. But that, that, that might be just me. That's because you like Pamela Paul Shaw. And there's another one else that fell, fell off the face of the earth. Whatever happened to her? Who knows, man? I think she, she did like a convention this year, too, I think. Oh, Maybe Mania Weekend or something. It was like they did like a reunion with her and some of the Nitro girls. It's something I remember reading about. But yeah, it's like, yeah, she she largely disappeared. 
WCW had a top-notch roster of female talent, especially towards the end of their existence, like in the 99-2000 time period. There were a, a lot of good stuff going on in, that, uh, in their women's, not so much a women's division, because they didn't wrestle. They just yeah. they had a bunch of women standing around interviewing people and staying in people's corners and uh, looking pretty good. And I can say that because I was a teenager at the time. Oh, this is right in my wheelhouse, I'll tell you that. Well, think about it, dude. You, you, you had Molly Holly, Medasia, Major yeah. Guns, Tori Wilson, Stacy Keebler. That's a. I mean, then. Tigress, yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, I was going to say, then you had like a bunch of the Nitro girls still around. Fire, and stuff. Spice. Yeah. Yeah, I think Kim, Kim Page was still doing Kim stuff. Really? Yeah. Oh, can't forget. It was a great time. This is what I'm talking about when it's a great time to be a teenager during this time period. Mm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. They, they, they had a great roster of female talent. I mean, again, not in terms of wrestling. Yeah, but since, I was, since I was a teenager, I didn't care about that aspect, honestly, because I was, <laughs> you know, in that I was in that mode. You know? Well, that's the thing. But the, the worst thing they did, though, is whenever they tried to fucking have some of them wrestle, it was just like the worst mistake, like like the Nitro Girls feuding at times. And... <laughs> yeah, that's a bad idea. You had the major gun Miss Hancock's match, which is which resulted in the in the uh it was it was it a miscarriage i forget Ugh. i think it, it might have been anytime it led to a miscarriage is a bad time we know that yeah <laughs> just uh it's russo special there yeah yeah but yeah it was um you know obviously again like you said it, teenager early 20s great time oh. to watch that roster of female talent absolutely no doubt about <laughs> it one of my fonder memories of late period days to w yep so moving on we had the World Tag Team titles on the line. The Natural Born Thrillers of Sean O'Hare and Chuck Palumbo versus Team Canada, Mike Awesome and Lance Storm. Again, talking about like possible missed opportunities. Sean O'Hare and Chuck, Chuck Palumbo. Mm. Yeah. I won't yeah. say exactly the greatest wrestlers in the world still needed work. Two young dudes, jacked, athletic ability. And, of course, when they get brought in, Basically, get their ass handed to them by the APA repeatedly, and become bitches. Yep, they got a bad rap from backstage because, well, for whatever, I don't, I don't even know what the actual reason was. Because they were young um, and athletic and jacked. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. And they looked like they were threats to their positions, pretty much. I suppose is what happened there. But uh, yeah, the whole net <laughs> and the natural born thrillers mentioned reminds me of the. Uh, the wonderful promo you uh, retweeted the other day with them and Gene Okerlund from back Gene. in, uh, I think it's New Blood Rising 2000, <laughs> where me and Gene, he, he gave no fucks, and he was just going off on these guys. I, he call, calls Mike Sanders a prick and uh, says, <laughs> what about the rest of you piss ants? <laughs> yeah, uh, you find it on my Twitter. So I forget who oh. posted it. I retweeted it. It's spectacular. But yeah, Gene's interviewing the Natural Born Throws, and he just... Gene doesn't give a fuck at this no. point. Yeah, he calls it calls a Sanders a prick. And then Sean O'Hara yeah. gets in his face and goes, blow it out your ass. <laughs> Five guys that can take out your knee. Oh, it's <laughs> fantastic. <laughs> yeah. I, don't what, I don't know what got up Gene's ass that day, but he was on a rare mood. <laughs> it was it was spectacular. Uh, but uh, the, the old the NBTs, they they're Kevin Nash days, of course. Nash is their coach for a period of time long before this. So we'll get to this match with uh, Lance Storm, Mike Awesome. There's a interesting duo for Team Canada. I don't know if Mike Awesome would ever... Well, he's in Canada. I know that. I also remember when Mike Awesome feuded with uh, Team Canada. I also remember Mike, Mike Rumble... 
awesome as the uh, the subbies guy, the career thriller, thriller killer, the fat chick thriller. He had a ton of horrible, <laughs> he had a ton of horrible gimmicks in this company, and uh, being Lance Storm's second guy in Team Canada was the, probably the best thing he did, which well, says yeah, a lot. At least, were, at least they were trying to like bring back ECW style Mike Awesome with it. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, mean, they were trying a, to let him kill people. It's a fine he, team, actually, too. Yeah, they were. I liked them a lot. But uh, another short match here. Um, again, fine for the time given. You can't do a lot in three minutes and 20 seconds. Yeah. But, I mean, the, you know, it was fine match. Natural Born Thrillers retain. And, um, again, I think I'm not going to claim that they're going to be, like, the best tag team of all time. But I think that when you have young guys with a good look and a lot of athletic ability – that have potential, and then you just bring him in and fucking bury him right away. Yeah, yeah. It's they, like they, <laughs> if they had treated them with a little more respect and tried the, they could have tried to build him up and make him into something. And they had no interest in doing that, unfortunately. So they never got to achieve their full potential. There are a couple other things during this match that I noticed. I had to point out. Uh, there was an interview during the, during the match with Vince uh, McMahon, and I just wrote here, "Holy shit." Michael Cole looks like such a fucking tool. Oh, yes. Michael Cole walks in with his WrestleMania baseball jersey on and his Tug into the jeans. <laughs> yeah. His he had the blonde highlights going. Oh, my God. He, he looked like a fucking tool. <laughs> it was terrible. Yes. <laughs> terrible. And then Scott Hudson had this great. I, I pulled this quote from Scott Hudson during this match. He says, uh, we're not guaranteed tomorrow. We're not guaranteed to wake up. I'm going to worry about the World Tag Team Championship. Yeah, and just, uh, but yeah, again, fine for what it was. Um, there was a segment that they did show with uh, Regal and Vince McMahon where Regal was like, are you sure you want to buy this company? I work there. <laughs> and then, of course, they come back, and Tony Schiavone's like, he basically, he's basically like, blow it out your ass, Regal. We put you over for years. He buried him. He said, I got the quote down here. We've had to do some crazy things, Steve Regal, including putting your ass over on TV. <laughs> and let's be honest, as much as we love William Regal nowadays, as much as he's a upstanding member of society now, he was a piece of shit back in the day. <laughs> so slightly Tony remembered that, and he was going to let him hear it. <laughs> yeah, slightly problematic back in the day. Yeah, he had, he had some issues, some drugs and whatnot. Uh, but I tell you what, we talk about the highlights of uh, late period days W, and we did have a Stacy Keebler appearance here. Oh yes, yes Miss Hancock. For this complete nonsense, by the way, which uh, St- <laughs> Sean Stasiak, Bam Bam Bigelow, a tattoo match, where the loser had to get a tattoo. How about that? This was a uh, <laughs> the star Sean Perfection Stasiak. <laughs> They like they they tried their hardest to they make tried him everything with that guy perfect, <laughs> but I'm sorry, all everybody ever saw with him was a dude named Meat that used to run into fucking walls all the time. Both companies tried everything with that guy. I mean, he had a body. <laughs> yeah, he was a second generation wrestler. By God, you know what? I will say this about Sean Stasiak. I interviewed him years ago. Very nice guy. Oh, I'm sure, no doubt. He was a super nice guy and with a good look. He had a good look. And, and they he, tried really hard with him. They did a lot of stuff, and then WWF just kind of gave up and had him doing stupid shit like Plant Stasiak and <laughs> things like that. Bad times. And uh, 
there was a spot in this match that, that completely boggled my mind. Bam Bam Bigelow had Stasiak up for the greens from Asbury Park. And little 105-pound Stacy Keebler grabs onto <laughs> Stasiak's foot. And, and somehow that keeps off and that's saves a, him. That's enough force, apparently, to keep Bam Bam Bigelow from dropping him. And I'm just like, wrestling's fake. <laughs> wrestling is fake. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure Bam Bam lost this match because he wanted a new tattoo. I think that's what happened there. Probably. Maybe he wanted to get some cleanup work on the dome, you know? I don't know. He was also the palest looking person in this show, which is uh, quite the feat in itself because they're in Panama City Beach for the whole week or whatever. So, yeah. So. I don't know what's going on there. It was a minute and 24 seconds. And <laughs> amazingly enough, it was pretty bad for a minute and 24 seconds. Yeah. Yeah, it was. But, I mean, you look at those names and what do you expect? I mean, yeah. I mean, Bam Bam wasn't terrible, but. No, yeah. but I mean, again, it he was a carry guy. One Bam Bam. Yeah. And he's. Yeah, whatever he had left wasn't enough to carry Sean Stacey. No, it was Bam Bam was past his peak at this point. So he he immediately went past his peak once he showed up in Dice W. Once he <laughs> once he left the ECW and showed up in Dice W, he was he was done pretty much. Yeah. So we move on to the WCW Cruiserweight Tag Team Championship match. The champions and these were two dudes with good looks. Yeah. Jack, Elix Skipper and Kid Romeo. Prime time, both, baby. Uh, yeah, who would both go on to uh, do some TNA stuff. You know, the thing was, is like, Elix was a lot older than people realized. And that dude stayed in good shape for a long time. He did. And he uh, did. they faced off with uh, the Filthy Animals, Rey Mysterio, apparently, allegedly, without a mask, and Billy Kidman. Yeah. And uh, Ray and Billy Kidman win the titles, 4 minutes, 43 seconds. Another go out there and get your shit in match because we don't have enough time. Pretty much, yeah. And another note I made in this match about something being completely ridiculous was uh, I have written out Ray powerbombing anybody seems completely ridiculous. And I, he did a powerbomb somewhere here. Yeah, on Kid Romeo. <laughs> I was like, wait a minute. I know Kid Romeo is not the, not the biggest guy in the world, but come on now. Crazy. Well, at least he was powerbombing another cruiser. It wasn't like he was out there like powerbombing Mike Awesome. I mean, <laughs> didn't Kid Romeo yeah, become like an exterminator or something? Possibly. I want to say he was an exterminator. I think he's working the Uncle Jesse gimmick back in the day. <laughs> but uh, yeah, again, fun, short, fun little match. Uh, got all their shit in. Crowd was into it at least. Uh, feel good moment with your baby faces winning. And uh, yeah, it's a uh, pretty sure. I, I think there was like a like one of those WWE confidential pieces with Ray, and like he had like the uh, like his replicas back yeah, there. They still have that belt somewhere. They still yeah. have this belt somewhere. Yeah, except, except like it wasn't the replica. I was gonna say he actually had the real one. Oh, sure. Just, they closed it down and never brought him back. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Yeah, and then the uh, cruiserweight uh, division had over WWE. They they barely even had cruiserweight singles division, much less the tag team division. Come on now. Yeah. And again, uh, but yeah, Ray and Kidman were a fun little team, and it was just it was what it was. Feel good, babyface moment, fun little match, and so that was that was it. And we got the to see a sting. Got to see a sting promo right after. Not for nothing was he gonna miss this night. That's right. A bunch of baseball bats everywhere, and he said, of course, uh, the only thing for sure about Sting is that nothing's for sure. And he would eventually would make his WWE uh, appearance many, 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 many years later. 
Yeah, you know, it's 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 really funny when you look at the Sting thing because he you know, he finishes up with WCW and he was another dude that was glad the company closed. Yeah. Because he was not a fan of the booking in the later years. He checked years. out a long time before that. I think when that around the time that he had his uh he had his uh rebirth, uh, his uh born again Christianity tone kind yeah. of again there. And he had checked out from the whole WCW business. Well that's that's because he didn't like he became born again and wanted to become a better person, and then he had to deal with all of Vince Russo's shit. Yeah, it's like, well. So, and I mean, granted, a lot of people checked out with him, too, so. That, um, that'd be tough on anybody, much less a born-again Christian. So the funny thing with Sting is, you know, he he finishes up here, he sits at home and collects his money, he becomes real estate Steve, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, makes, makes a bunch of money doing uh, real estate stuff. Works the uh, WWA shows with Jarrett and them, and uh, then would eventually go on to sign and work with TNA over the years. He had some kind and, of loyalty uh, for Jarrett, and then eventually for Dixie Carter. Yeah, and you know, say what you will about Sting, but the thing is, Sting was a very big deal for TNA, and a lot of people don't understand. But the fact is, when they were able to actually lock him into a deal. Yeah. That's when that company started picking up those international TV deals. Yeah, and that's when like Spike TV and them were interested too. Exactly. So I mean, you know, again, there's people always talk about like you know certain people should have went to WWE and stuff, and you can make cases for a lot of guys. But I will say that I'm kind of glad that he didn't because it. First, I still wish they didn't after the experience yeah. he had there. Let's be honest. Exactly. But I mean, I was glad he didn't at first because I mean. Say what you will about certain guys in the business. He felt like he was trying to help that company when he went to TNA. And he helped them get TV deals. And he wanted to put people over. He wanted to make a business star. He wanted to make Christopher Daniels a star, which they put the kibosh on. Yeah. yeah. You know, so, I mean, he had a lot of good intentions. And he did a lot of good for that company. And um, like like Steve said, it was uh, – by the time he got to WWE, it was – it was really too late, and then of course, they couldn't even do the one match that people actually wanted. No, Undertaker was Undertaker had not seen that salty money yet, so exactly. <laughs> so that, that was course, the kind of kibosh there, and then you know you had to have Triple H at WrestleMania. I was gonna say you had to do the big Attitude Era fucking wank fest with God, Triple I, H. I hated yes, that. Hated, 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 hated that match. And just so you guys know, I am doing the fucking jerk off hand motion right now. Yeah, because that's exactly be. what that match was. That was a pile of shit. I'm sorry, but I remember people why people on you know offteam.com quick plug there. People were just loving on that match while it was going on because I guess they're having the attitude jerk off or whatever. They're happy to see the the DX and NW and all that stuff, and I was just not having any of it. I mean, for God's sakes, why would the NWO come down to help Sting? That makes no fucking sense. Come on yeah. now. I and, feel the, the uh, best part of that terrible. whole run in was, uh, you know, obviously Hogan, who was basically immobile. <laughs> yeah, and then right. Sean, they exactly run in. <laughs> yeah. Sean Waltman fucking like sprints at him at full speed. <laughs> and then, of course, Hogan just rears back and punches him. And Xbox flies like 50 feet backwards. It was like, that was the best bump of the whole match. Didn't Kevin Nash <laughs> just take like one bump and fall down and forget about it <laughs> i think he just fell down i wouldn't even call it a bump he might just fell down. was there anybody near him he might have just fallen down yeah didn't want to tear his quad brother no man but uh yeah this is bad enough and then of course he has a match with seth rollins and that didn't go well either so uh, god right. i wish thing hadn't gone there do we yeah 
So anyway, Sting defeats Ric Flair in their their last WCW match. And say what you will, perfect symmetry because they started off Nitro together. You go back to the Clash match and just the feud over the years. And I, I just remember people being insulted by Flair saying that Sting was his greatest rival because I think everybody loves to think it's Steamboat. And there was history even before the 89 series with Steamboat back in the 70s and sure. everything. But I mean... In terms of quote unquote WCW, mm-hmm. Sting was his greatest rock. Absolutely, yeah. and there. I mean, yeah, I I've seen that opinion out there as well, and there's there's no doubt if you're talking about WCW, and you, yes, WCW is about Sting and Flair pretty much from the start until the finish, pretty much because those guys were going at back when Turner bought the company. That Clash sure. of Champions one was Sting versus Ric Flair. The first Monday Nitro, you had Sting versus Ric Flair. So, of course, on the last Monday Nitro, you'd have Sting versus Ric Flair. Yeah. Even though and Ric Flair was uh, nowhere near uh, fighting shape. And it was the, by far the worst Sting and Ric Flair match of all time. But, you know, it's still fun to watch. Yeah, and I, I would add, like, a little, like, an asterisk to that. Like, yes, technically probably the worst Sting Flair match. But, again, it wasn't bad. It was a Reader's Digest play the hits version of their stuff. And like you said, Flair wasn't in the best shape. He was out there in a Nitro t-shirt. But they were they were enough Sting versus Ric Flair that I think it was fine. Yeah. It was fine to close it out. And, you know, you look at it and it's like, yeah, it's like obviously could have been better. But, I mean, you're closing WCW up. I, it was the best way to do it. And I thought also the Tony Schiavone, I thought, did a great job in this match, too. And Tony has admitted that for most of the last period of ICW, he didn't care. Like, I think Tony checked out around, what, 98 or so was when he stopped caring and just started giving them what they wanted to hear. So it's just the greatest night in the history of the sport or whatever. But, and I think a lot of people still downsell Schiavone's commentary to this day because they just remember some of the stuff from Nitro. But... He always did a great job uh, putting over stuff when he when he actually cared about. It. You could tell he cared about this match, and him and Scott Hudson knew all the history of WCW. They they were just run off stuff left and right. It was a great job of commentary. And Tony's last match uh, for uh, you know on a worldwide scale for a long period of time. Yeah, and and you are correct. He was it, Tony does get a lot of shit for his you know the way because he, he did check out, and you can't again. Like we said with Sting and with a lot of fans, you can't blame the guy. That fucking stuff was just there was so much bullshit. And he's even said too that like when like they kind of put him in charge of the announcers and stuff, he hated it. Yeah. Because yeah. he, he, he hated it. He hated the fact that it made Heenan resent him. Cause like he loved Bobby Heenan. And it's just yeah, it's like you feel bad for the guy because that place was just such a clusterfuck in terms of the way it was run by quote unquote management and people not even knowing who the fuck was in charge. And yeah, but yeah, he and Scott Hudson were really great here. They, they were just selling the history of everything these guys had done. And Tony Schwanny and Flair were friends. And you can just tell that like a lot of love and care put into the commentary because, you know, they knew that it wasn't going to be, you know, Clash of the Champions, Sting and Flair. Yeah. But yeah. They, they wanted to call it like it was. They tried to make it as important as possible. And in that aspect, they did a really good job. And again, 
a fitting chapter to close out Nitro from a wrestling aspect. Yes, it did. If the show had ended there, it would have been fine. (laughs) But the show did not end. We had to do a simulcast, by God. (laughs) Yeah, and uh, the simulcast closes with Vince McMahon coming to the ring. Um, he uh, he had William reannounce him again. Yeah. Oh, it was just so terrible. Like, oh, you got to do it again, do it again, do it again. And then, like, I, I think the saddest, it, I guess, like the saddest thing too during this is not only is like Vince out there and gloating, and he kept saying TNN instead of TNT. Yeah, that wasn't. But good. he's like, he's out there gloating, and you know, he's burying the fucking talent. And even worse than that, though, is. Not only is he doing that, but Paul Heyman is on commentary. Yeah. Calling Vince the king of the Monday Night Wars. And it's just like how it just felt like so sad on multiple levels because the Monday Night Wars are over. ECW is over. Paul Heyman is now basically sucking Vince's dick on the air. It's just like... It's, it, it, it all came crashing down, brother. <laughs> I forgot about the part where he's trying to put over the idea of having Ted Turner show up at WrestleMania. It's like, yeah, okay. <laughs> yes. yeah that's going to happen. <laughs> yeah, in an effort to best Ted Turner, he had to become a billionaire himself to beat a multinational conglomerate. And, uh, yeah, the, the whole gimmick was Vince had agreed to buy the company, but he didn't sign the contract. Yeah, because he was gonna make Ted Turner come to WrestleMania 17, walk to the ring and bring it to him, and then he would sign the contract. Well, you should have had the fucking AOL AOL guy doing it. If that's what he wanted to do, Turner had nothing to do with any of this. That's right, because Ted wanted to keep his his wrestling. That's right. Brad Siegel said, "Fuck it, we lost too much money." Oh, I've, uh, we've, we forgot to mention something before the Flair and Sting match with Vince walking backstage. And I, I only wanted to mention it because you hear him saying to a police officer, how you doing, pal? Pal. You know, because he says pal all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Good old. <laughs> but yeah, he, he, he teases Ted Turner coming to WrestleMania and then starts talking about how... Uh, you know, he's pulling the fans on WCW talent. Like, weird reactions to, like, Buff and Luger and Hogan. Uh, they kind of liked Booker. They liked Steiner. And then Goldberg and Sting got pops because they yeah. were stars. And then Vince was like, he would have loved to have gone to the Redneck Riviera of Panama City and line them up all in the ring and tell them they're fired. We had to be yeah, and he's in Cleveland. <laughs> uh, how appropriate is it that WCW's last event is in a beer hall with a bunch of beer-drinking rednecks? And again, you're in Cleveland, brother. Yeah. It's on a damn beach. Get it right. Yeah, but he said he was going to put WCW on the shelf and bury it, and they would remain buried, and WWF would live on. And, you know, it's like when you attempt with Vent, when you attempt to compete with him, he says you get buried. And Shane will find that out because he's Vince McMahon. But then Vince makes the classic um, villain move of, well, he basically laid out his whole plan in a monologue. Yeah. And it fucked him in the ass at the end because no chance hits. And everybody's expecting Shane to come out. But 
Shane isn't there, Steve. Where is he? He's in Panama City Beach, brother. What? Yeah, I know. I know. Why would Shane McMahon be in Panama City, Steve? Well, because apparently he was smart enough to figure out, uh, made a little birdie talk to him that Vince didn't sign that contract. So he figured he might, he figured he might just go down Panama City Beach himself. And you know what? The kind of the name on the contract might read McMahon, but it's Shane McMahon because Shane McMahon now owns WCW. And That's oh, right. Oh, everybody's going crazy. Vince Shane. Oh, oh God. Oh God. Tune on Sunday for WrestleMania. Street fight. That's right. And the funny thing here is we would find that a couple years later because everybody always wanted to know at the time, how did Shane have the money to buy WCW, even the storyline? <laughs> well, we found out a couple years later that a consortium had uh, ended up buying WCW and ECW and that it was Ric Flair. Ah, the nature. That's right. That, that, that promo with Flair when that night when, when he confronts Vince. It's just like again, it's it's classic Ric Flair, just going nuts, and he's he bites his fucking tongue, and he's going nuts on Vince, and it's just yeah. But uh, that's how Nitro close or Nitro and you know the thing on that Flair thing, real quick, that pissed me off about it, which uh, that was the that was the night after Survivor Series, after the invasion officially ended, when the alliance went away, yeah. it went on the bigger, went on to the off to the pasture, if you will. And uh, wouldn't you know it, the night after they end up then this whole WCW thing, now they start getting Ric Flair. And then the NWA shows up a couple months later. <laughs> and then Scott then eventually shows up Goldberg that. shows and up. Goldberg shows up. And, you know, once they finally get rid of these pesky initials, now we can bring in all the stars. Eric Bischoff, he fucking showed up. Like, <laughs> maybe if you bring those guys in back when you, WCW still had some value, it would have made sense. Maybe, may not. But this whole closing segment simulcast, it summed up the main problems with the invasion. It was a backdrop for McMahon stuff. He had Vince and Shane going at it. And then Stephanie, of course, came in later on. They said it's just all about McMahon's. And it's all about burying Dice W. And, and I wonder the, why it didn't work. And that's the thing, too, because we'll, we'll talk a little invasion here before we go on to our next subject. But like, And that is the problem. And we've talked about it for years. Everything always becomes about the McMahon's. And, and still does. Yeah, and the thing is, is like, I can, I, I could, I could buy the Shane and WCW thing. I didn't have a problem with that because I thought they played. I, I mean, Vince bearing the, the whole fucking company he just bought on national TV was horrible, but the ending segment with Shane played well. And they were feuding. They had the big WrestleMania match, and I liked that aspect of it. But where it goes off the rails later on is you have Paul Heyman in this company, and then you bring in ECW, which we may have to watch this Raw later on, Steve, and talk about the night that the invasion kind of goes off the rails when they bring yeah, in yeah, ECW yeah. and they end up joining the Alliance and forming all that shit in one night. Uh-huh. But the problem is you have Paul Heyman in this company, and then you bring in ECW, but it's not Paul Heyman leading them. It's Stephanie who, quote-unquote, bought ECW. No. Was she part of that consortium as well? Is that how that went? I, yeah, I think so. But it's like later on, it's like, why? It's like, no. It was like at the time, I'm like, that is just the worst. I hated that at the time. 
Because I'm like, no, it's like Paul Heyman's standing right there. Literally, he's in the ring with everybody. You know, whenever they let Paul Heyman cut a promo, it actually kind of worked. But that didn't happen all the time. Oh, there was that awesome one he cuts on Vince. Yeah. When he just fucking lights him up and then Taz chokes him out at the end. Oh, that's great. Because it wasn't Heyman. He's like, look what you did to him. Yeah. Look what you did to Taz. He was the baddest man on the planet. And now he's just a fat announcer. Yep. And it's, it's like, yeah, he's just going off on Vince destroying everything. And then Taz ends up choking him. And all. yeah, that's, that is a great promo. But yeah, it's, and that's probably why they didn't let him do it. He was just too good. <laughs> Apparently. I, I wish I got a billion dollar princess, Sean. Oh, yeah. But the invasion, while it did do some good business at times, missed opportunities, should have been much more. And led to the downfall of wrestling. There you go. <laughs> I might be a little over dramatic, but <laughs> there were there were a lot of WCW fans that never came back, is all I'm saying. That's right, Steve. Um so to close up this week, uh we've talked about this series before. Steve, let's talk a little dark side of the ring on the the Viceland Network. Uh, The series has been overall throughout, I think, really good. Um, I think probably probably the Montreal one was just the weakest one overall just because it's been rehashed 8 million times. Um, But, I mean, you know, it wasn't bad by any means. But uh, these last two episodes we're going to talk about is, first, we'll start with, the death of Bruiser Brody, Steve. Mm, yeah, the, the death of Bruiser Brody, of course. And um, it's one of those things where, I mean, people like you and me have read all about it for years. We know all, we've done all the research and all that stuff. There are a lot of people out there that, I mean, this was over 30 years ago that were, weren't alive when Bruiser Brody was alive at all. Like today's average WWE fan never saw Bruiser Brody. They don't know who the heck he is. So it's a, it, and it's a, one of these amazing stories too, where uh, you know, he goes down to Puerto Rico. He has the issue with uh, with Invader Jose Gonzalez, and you have Tony Atlas and Dutch Mantel. They're telling the story. Abdullah the Butcher telling the story as well, and Abdullah looks to be in pretty poor shape these days, which is not exactly surprising. He was in pretty poor shape for like the last twenty years, right? Pretty much. Oh yeah, I mean, think he did about- like twenty years of wrestling where he couldn't even get in the ring. Yeah, I mean, the dude was giant in his day, and it's just like, you know, I, I don't want to hear people like, well, he didn't exactly take a lot of bumps. Yeah, but you're carrying the, all that weight for all those years. and Yeah. I mean, trust me, take it from someone that ended up losing a lot of weight here with the leg gimmick and everything. Um, I mean, I feel way better because I dropped a bunch of the weight, and, like, it's nice being a light heavyweight right now. uh, let's hope it stays that way man (laughs) it is so far i mean i'm doing good but i will tell you that like i couldn't have made it through all the therapy stuff and having to deal with uh you know transferring in and out of the chair on um excuse me one leg um you know with like 50 extra pounds it just would have been with the with the mud flaps of the duel of the butcher when when made good time but uh uh just and yeah we got to hear we heard from uh bruiser birdie's widow from from his son, uh, which is which is something we hadn't seen before. They had the storage closet they went to where they had like all kinds of Bruiser Brody type of stuff. You had uh, let's see, 
Yeah, you had Dutch telling the story. Was, was Cornette on that one? I'm. Was he on? This I don't one? think Cornette was on that one. Yeah, Cornette wasn't on this one. But uh, you mostly heard from the people involved, like Tony Atlas. Was itching to tell his side of the story too. He's pretty excited about it for whatever reason. But uh, yeah, just a ridiculous situation where Bruiser Brody gets stabbed in the shower by uh, Invader Jose Gonzalez. Call him what you want, but uh, and that good old fashioned Puerto Rican justice where <laughs> where the guy gets uh, the guy gets over. Even then, you have everybody telling different stories. Tony Adler is losing his mind because he saw it happen, and everybody's acting like it didn't happen. And uh, Dutch didn't quite see it, but he, you know, he heard about it, and oh, just uh, it was a, a pretty emotional deal. Larry Zonka watching. The yeah, whole it's, a, it's, it's, it's a it's a haunting get... tale because it's yeah. like, he, you know, Brody's down there, and Brody is, you know, there's a, you hear stories about Brody because he was he was very protective of his gimmick because he knew his value. Yep. And you know he it's was tough to work with her. was the uh, was not. Yeah, but he um basically the the deal with a uh, piece of shit invader is that uh he was supposed to be earmarked allegedly for stardom and had a match with Brody early on and Brody just fucking ate him up. Ate him up, you know. Beat the shit like out of him. Yeah. Like literally beat the shit out of him cuz like they said like when uh Gonzalez was uh taking his mask off his face was just swollen up and yeah, so Brody beat the shit out of him, and then Invader gets uh, power in the company and is uh, one of the bookers, and I guess uh, had enough of Brody, and fucking just, he kills him, fucking stabs him in the shower. And I'll tell you what, dude, after watching this, all I could think of was Carlos Colon was fucking in on that shit. Yeah. Oh, what a what a piece of shit that guy is. Doing. Dutch Mantel talks about when he, you know, they they come to the locker room and it's uh, Jose Gonzalez is there, Invader, and uh, Carlos Colon is there, and someone else is there. Victor Jovita, I believe. Thank you. Yeah. And apparently that wasn't a normal thing. They were just sitting there in the locker room talking. Brody comes in, you know. They go. Invader wants to talk to him. They go in the shower and he fucking stabs him a couple times. Uh, Brody's intestines are basically spilling out of his body. Tony Atlas helps, uh, you know, tries to help him, take him to the hospital. As Tony Atlas tells it, they're not uh, seeing him right away because the doctor told him stabbings are like getting a cold down here, and it happens all the time. Yeah, the doctors, the police, they thought they thought it was a wrestling deal, you know. Yeah, they thought it was real because that's how Puerto Rico was. Yeah. The fans and thought it was real, but uh, yeah. the, the police and the doctors did, and they thought it was, uh, they thought it was a work. Yeah, it's, then, a, it's a scary shit, man. And you had the police ask another wrestlers about, it, and the wrestlers went along with uh, Jose and Victor and all these guys. They're just because they're they're worried about their personal employment, pretty much. Yeah, and then like the worst part is Steve talked about that good old Puerto Rican justice is, uh, you know, Tony Atlas and Dutch Mantel were told that they would have to come back for the trial. And then they find out that Jose Gonzalez is basically exonerated and like Dutch got his paperwork and summons like 10 days after the trial. Yeah, he already knew the result. (laughs) Yeah, and apparently Tony Atlas was never contacted and he was the big witness in the case. That's a tragic story, man. And uh, And yeah... Bruiser and the Brody's widow talks about going, you know, finally going down to the airport after getting a couple calls from 
having a conversation with a Dutch over the phone. So she flies down there and she meets Abdullah the Butcher at the airport. And she she asks Abdullah the Butcher what like what's going on, what's happened, and you know the the longtime in ring rival of Bruiser Brody had to be the one to break that news. Yeah, so I mean, if you haven't um, seen the special, that one's definitely worth it. Uh, also, uh, High Spots did an excellent documentary on the whole thing too. So if you're looking for like multiple things to learn more about it, if you don't know a lot about it, I would highly suggest those. And uh, kind of unfortunately, Steve, but again, another great show is uh, the next one we're going to talk about, which was on basically the rise and fall of the Von Eric family. Yep, the the last Von Eric, uh, Kevin Von Eric. It was uh, it was his story pretty much. And if you're like me, you're like Larry. I mean, we've we've seen the WWE documentary. We've seen the you've seen the Heroes of World Class. I assume probably at some point you probably watched that the, that one documentary. Oh yeah, yeah. Yep, so. Hero, so we, the Heroes of World Class is excellent. It is. It is. So you know the story of the of the Von Erics. You know about Fritz. You know he had he had all these sons and. Uh, he had Jackie, and he had uh, had Kevin, Carrie, Mike, Chris. Who am I missing? I'm missing somebody. I'm sorry. <laughs> You're not missing Lance because he wasn't a Von Eric. No, Lance wasn't a Von Eric. But uh, yeah, it, it runs through the history of the Von Eric family through the eyes of Kevin, pretty much, since Kevin's the one that's telling the story. And Kevin, these days, he seems to have quite the charm life living down in Hawaii. Uh, he's gone off into the middle of nowhere, pretty much. It looks like a nice life, doesn't it? Looks like he's doing pretty well. Yeah, and I think the thing is, too, is, like, when I see him down there, like, I've seen, like, videos, like, that he's posted with him and his sons hanging on and stuff, and whenever I see that, I'm always happy because I think it was smart. I mean, he got out of wrestling, and yeah, wrestling guy out of the country. I mean, guy yeah, out of Texas I mean, pretty did, much, yeah. Yeah, he, he went down to Hawaii. He had his family, and like he said, that, like, he really thinks his family was like his salvation that kept him alive. Yeah. And um, just like, you know, got away from the business and everything. And yeah, see, it seems like a happy guy. And just, I mean, considering he has any joy in his life after watching this special is just amazing. It's amazing because it goes right through it. I mean, well, I, they mentioned Jackie, the, the oldest brother who was uh, who died very young in a tragic electrocution. And then, of course, you had David. The David who went over to Japan had the uh, gastroenteritis, which there's been a lot of speculation about that over the years. Um, there's autopsy results. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. All I can tell you is that I've had gastroenteritis before. It's not good. That's a bad time. Yeah, there, there's a lot of speculation. They even talk about it on the uh, documentary that um, it was a drug overdose. That's been the story for years. And that um, Bruiser Brady found David's body and hid the pills. And flushed the drugs. Yeah, so I mean, well, I mean, they I said guess. Fritz when they said Fritz was going to tell the truth, but uh, I mean, you know, at the same time, how often did Fritz tell the truth? <laughs> okay, the, Fritz is a dude that had a quote-unquote heart attack on air. Yeah, brought in a fake Von Eric. Brought in uh, the fake Von Eric. Oh, they went to the detail on that as well. Good old yeah. Lance Von Eric. So, but, um, yeah, like Steve said, the, uh, the older brother dies at six years old, Jackie, he, uh, gets electrocuted on crossing a trailer and then drowns in the snow. And Kevin says that Fritz was never the same after that. And I, I, I tend to believe that. 
Well, yeah. I mean, I mean, as a as a parent, I couldn't imagine losing a six year old. And so the, Kevin is now the oldest. He and David break into wrestling first together. Carrie comes afterwards, and uh, you know Fritz was the big star at first, and then he uh, he starts the world class territory, and he eventually you know his sons are great athletes, and he decides to try to make his sons the stars. Which yeah, I mean, yeah. say what you will. You people always joke about nepotism and wrestling, but the Bond Irish were fucking stars. It made sense. It made sense. I mean, and some people even say that May Fritz pressured him into it. But then there are people who say, well, they probably didn't need a lot of pressure. Yeah, and I don't think Fritz didn't really need to press them too hard to get into business because that's that's what they wanted to do. They wanted to follow in their father's footsteps, and uh, definitely, I mean, especially, I mean, Kevin, Carrie, David, those guys were fucking over. <laughs> they were they were huge stars. David was David was the best worker. Uh, if you've never seen a lot of David Von Erich, uh, I would check it out. Uh, Kevin Von Erich was a great athlete with a good look. Yeah. Carrie Von Erich had that fucking he was called the modern day warrior. Came he out was, the modern day warrior and he had Hulk Hogan, Ultimate Warrior, whatever you want, pretty much. Yeah, he had one of the best physiques in the business. He had in ring wise good charisma. Wouldn't call him like a good promo, but like. In the ring, I mean, dude had that charisma. He had that it factor. Looked like a complete star. Absolutely. And uh, and then things start going downhill with uh, David passing away in Japan. And uh, Kevin, uh, I, I want to say it was around that time that uh, Carrie had the motorcycle accident. They, they kind of did a timeline out order on the show. But I want to say it was around that time that Terry, Carrie had the motorcycle accident. And also they brought in Mike Von Eric to replace him. Uh, the whole Lance thing didn't work out, and uh, Mike tried as well. Mike uh, probably should not have been a wrestler. I think most people would say that. Kevin wouldn't say that, but uh, most other people would say that Mike did not have the athletic ability to be a wrestler. And then, of course, he goes overseas. He has a shoulder injury, has the complications from surgery, goes into to- toxic shock syndrome, pretty much fries the kid's brain. Poor guy. And yeah, one of the saddest things I've ever seen, and I've seen him multiple times, including on the show. An interview with Mike Von Erich after he has a toxic shock, and he's talking about he's going to be at the Cotton Bowl, and you should go see him at the Cotton Bowl for the show. And it's just the saddest thing to see this this kid who's obviously the lights are on, but nobody's home. That kid, yeah, that I mean, kid wasn't right. That was, yeah, not, and, that was, that was bad. Steve, yeah, Steve's not joking. If you haven't seen the interview or the special, he's talking, and his brain literally was never the same because of. I mean, he was he had such a high fever for a long time and they thought he was going to die. And when he's talking, he's you would if you didn't know the background of what happened to him, you would sit there and think he was a mentally challenged individual to put it basically. Yeah. He yeah. doesn't sound good. He's slurring his speech and it's just yeah, and they're, they they want, you know, they're talking about bringing him back and you know, he's going to come back and all you could think of is like no, and like you know, Dave Meltzer was on the special. He's talking when he's talking about him. He's like, um, he's like, you know, he's like, you can make the argument he shouldn't have wrestled in the first place. He's like, let yeah, alone yeah. have him come back. And it's just, oh, it's yeah, and that's just terrible. Such yeah, horrible situation. Just again, you're talking about the the luck of this family. And, um, and then Mike, uh, of course, ends up killing himself because he <laughs> he knew he couldn't live up to the Von Eric ideal. Is pretty much what happened there, and he was, well. It don't don't overshadow the arrest. He he got arrested yeah, for the cotton bowl and he got uh yeah, alcohol and weed and 
yeah, he ends up ends up shooting himself and just tragic. And then like, and the worst part is Kevin Von Erich talking about it because he finds him before he kills himself and ends up going down to talk to Fritz. And then Fritz sends him back up, and it's too late. Oh, I think it's that, that that's Chris actually. That, that was Chris. Yeah, that, that was Chris. Where he found he, he yeah, it's Chris. The Chris story when Chris was oh shit one. yeah I'm sorry. Yeah. And Chris was another one. He should, never should have wrestled. He's like five foot tall, had asthma. Just a he really wanted to. He had the desire, but there was just no way it was ever going to happen for him. And he also ran into problems with drugs and arrests and things like that. And he was the one where he. Where Carrie, where Kevin, pretty much, uh, you know, came and talked to him, and Chris like, you, you didn't read my note. So then he goes back and reads the note, and he's like, hey, Fritz is Chris ever write, Chris ever write suicide notes? And Fritz like, you better go check on him. And that's when he goes and finds him with the bullet hole in his brain. Just, yeah, the, the Chris and Mike stuff, I always confuse. Yeah, Mike, yeah. Mike just went off into the woods with a sleeping bag and a bunch of pills. And yeah, booze and all kinds of stuff, and he was gone for a few days, and they they knew what happened. They they knew kind of what happened there, but and then you had but, Carrie. <laughs> well, hang on, we we need to go back and touch on Lance real let's, quick. Let's touch on Lance. So Lance still alive? they decide they decide they need a new Von Eric. <laughs> and when you listen, like on this special, Kevin, they ask him like, "Can we talk about Lance?" And he goes, "Oh." Yeah, you have to. He's like, I, right. you know, it's like Kevin fucking hated this idea. But Lance Von Eric was a good looking athletic dude that looked like he could be a Von Eric. The problem was, is apparently he was like an all state athlete in Texas. Yeah. And the they people knew him. knew him. And they knew he wasn't a Von Eric. And then they realized that the Von Eric family was lying to them. So he comes in, the Lance thing doesn't work out. And then the Von Erich family basically like bury him on the way out. Yeah. And then yeah. the fans are like, fuck you. You said he was your, you know. <laughs> I remember the story that Gary Hart told about this on the uh, WWE documentary where he, he was walking to the arena and then like one of the fans asked him, uh, well, do you know about Chris Vaughn? And Gary Hart's trying to kayfabe. He's like, who? Uh, Chris Vaughn, Lance Von Erich. Um, he's like, I have no idea. And he's trying to kayfabe. Like, he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. He's like, and the fans like, we know he's not a Von Eric. The Von Erics lie. We didn't think they did that. Yeah, and again, that was part of the, uh, along with the various, um, the deaths and the scandals and stuff with the boys. You had that in there, which was again another part of the downfall of world class. And with all the all with the backdrop of the tremendously Christian image they were building up the whole time too. Exactly. So it's just, um, you know, we talk about fan loyalty and like how you really can't lie to your fan base and that you need to be honest. And this is a early example of that because to Texans, I mean, at this time, the Von Erics were gods. And they believed that they were good Christian boys and that they always told the truth. And even when there were reports out there that the, you know there was something going on or the boys got in trouble, the fans' first instinct was to never believe it. Yeah. Because, like Steve said, they had this strong image of good Christian boys. And, um, yeah, it wasn't exactly the case. 
But yeah, the Lance thing was another step in the overall downfall, um, which is unfortunate because you look back, we talked about Nitro being revolutionary programming. And World Class was another example of that from like a production standpoint. Uh, they were shooting things differently, camera guys in the ring at times, uh, different things with the interviews and stuff. And um, I mean, yeah, the, the, the World Class TV was doing a lot of stuff that other people didn't do at the time. Totally revolutionary product yeah and then of course once and once the, ter- the territory went downhill of course during all this with all the with all the deaths and the lying and just all the stuff going on the territory it went to the shitter pretty much so that's when uh kevin started getting out of it and carrie uh decided he's getting an offer so he decided to make the move up to the world wrestling federation the texas tornado carrie von eric and uh you know, I remember seeing the Texas tornado a little bit here and there, and uh, he, the bloom is already off that rose by the time he got there. He just well, he wasn't the same guy, and of yeah. course they they explained during the vid during the documentary, and this happened. It's kind of the timeline is kind of off, but they explain how Carrie had the motorcycle accident, and how he lost the foot, and that is another instance of the the Von Erichs lying, where they they insisted that uh, no Kevin Carrie healed up, and uh, you know. He doesn't have. He has two feet. He's fine. He's good. Yeah, and the thing is too is like the, apparently he was riding his motorcycle without shoes, and then he crashed into a parked police car. Yeah, yeah. A, so, just guess the state of mind he was in. Yeah, not not the not the regular state of mind, obviously. But uh, and is and somebody mentioned. I don't know if it's David Manning or somebody mentioned. Like even if they had gone public with uh, Kevin losing the carry losing the foot that might have actually worked like they could have sold him like doing all this great stuff with just one foot yeah and instead again it was um everybody was sworn to secrecy and like you said steve lies and um there was i remember there was a big rumor around um super clash three that um the wwf was uh someone called (laughs) the athletic commission And we're trying because apparently, if you were an amputee, you could not wrestle where they were holding Super Clash yeah, Three. Chicago. Yeah, and apparently they were trying to rat out Kerry Von Eric to ruin that main event. Well, they which, really didn't need to bother because that show is a failure anyway. But I mean, again, that's um, that's kind of par for the course for the WWE playbook. I mean, pretty much. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> then they brought him in later on, and. Uh... I mean, they, he got the Intercontinental title from Mr. Perfect, but after that, uh, he just he didn't do a whole heck. That's when he started. He had more more drug problems. I mean, the drugs had already started before then, but then he got, had more drug problems. You know, with the obviously the pain from the, being an amputee. I mean, so <laughs> and that that just led to more and more issues to arrests, and uh, pretty much Carrie also feeling like he shamed the family name and had to had to go off into the night. Yeah, and that's um, and the reason he basically did that is he knew he was going to jail because he was on probation. Yeah, he was done. He was going. And, he's going. The yeah. And according to the story, I guess like he uh he had told his wife that um you know he's like I'll go to jail, but you got to promise you'll be here for me. And she said no. Couldn't do that. Couldn't do it. And um, yeah. So between like the pain and the drug problems and realizing he was going to jail and his career was probably done at that point. I mean, you can say it was done before that, if you want, like Steve said, because, you know, I mean, he comes into WWF at the time 
he still looks like Kerry Von Eric. He's in great shape. He's obviously not as mobile. Um, you know, he's not the same guy. He was never a great worker, but he wasn't very good. And then, like, quickly, Vince is like, well, you're not Kerry Von Eric anymore. You can't use the Iron Claw. You're the Texas Tornado. I mean, to be fair, he wasn't the first guy that had had that sort of thing happen to him there. No, but I mean, like, I Harley mean, Race had to be the king, you know. Yeah, but like, um, but like, um, Meltzer said on the special, he's like, all he really had left was the fact that he was Kerry Von Erich. Yep. You know, I mean, the the name was at that point, the name and his look was pretty much all he had, and then you take that away, and he's just a a dude with a look. And at, by that point in, you know, the early nineties, I mean, even his look wasn't that special anymore. It didn't stand out from the rest of that, uh, the crowd, the land of the giants that, that company was at the time. Yeah. You know, 86 or whatever, when he, you know, he's the modern day warrior and shit with the flowing locks and the fucking jacked physique. I mean, yeah, I mean, he looks great and it's just, it wasn't what it was in that time. So, but yeah, so then, you know, Carrie kills himself and, just another tragic step in the family's whole legacy. And then, um, then like they're on the documentary and like, apparently the producers have said it was like the most emotional thing they ever shot. Like Kevin had to take several breaks talking about things. They had to take breaks just because it was getting emotional. And yeah, then yeah. you hear one of his sons off screen. He's like, you know, can you tell the story about the time dad pulled a gun on you? Ugh. So Steve, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's a bad. That's that a situation where I'd heard about. I'd I'd heard ver- versions of that before, where uh, Fritz uh, pulls the gun on Kevin and tells him that you know if you had any guts, you'd kill you'd, you'd kill yourself too. And uh, Kevin responds with, you know, it, it takes guts to live, not to die. And uh, he explained how Fr- Fritz had brain cancer at this point, and he is pretty much rotting away. And uh, Kevin wasn't sure whether and. Fritz was still pointing that gun like he was going to shoot Kevin. Kevin didn't know whether he was going to do it or not, so he ran out because he wasn't going to let cancer kill him, pretty much, is what he said there. But, uh, and, uh, yeah, eventually, and Fritz also got divorced from Doris, the, the, the mother, around that time. Just You could imagine what kind of strain all of this would have on a marriage. Yeah, I mean, Fritz outlives all of his sons with Kevin. And, yeah, just... He loses his wife, you know, he, he lost his territory, his sons, and just, yeah, the, the downfall is just, um, and before I, I don't know Kevin, to, before yeah. Kevin found his happiness too. And before he yeah. found moved to Hawaii and all that, he was thinking about uh, doing some bad stuff too. Like he wanted to get to jail. So he tells a story about how he goes to a gun shop in, in, in Texas he, he's going to steal a gun, and that's going to be his route to jail. And he just takes the gun, puts it in his pocket, and he just looks at the guy standing behind the, behind the counter. And the guy behind the counter just says, love you, Kev. And Kevin walks out, and he kind of has the has the second thoughts, and he just walks back in the gun shop and hands the gun over and hugs the guy. Yeah, and it's... When you think about it, him going through everything he did with all of his brothers and the fact that he, the fact that he didn't walk out and put a bullet in his own head or anything like that and ended up finding happiness with the family and everything. is just, 
it's the one good thing you can take from an extremely tragic story. Yeah, yeah. it's uh, it, it was tough to get through the episode too. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, <laughs> even though, even if you even if you know the whole story, it's just kind of tough to tough to get through it again. And yeah, uh, and I've watched the WWE version of the story, and I've watched the Heroes of World Class, and I lived through a lot of the World Class stuff and watched it, and it's. Even I had a hard time getting through it because it doesn't get any easier. Nope. No, it doesn't. And uh, yeah, t- tough times. Uh, next week's episode, I'm pretty interested in. They're gonna have the uh, story of Gino Hernandez, and that's a that's a story. If you haven't heard that one before, just, uh, tune into that. Let's put it over. Why not? Tune yeah, in the Viceland. Watch that one because there's stuff, stuff I want to hear about. Quite frankly, as far as that whole story goes. Yeah, um, so I think the uh, I think the Dark Side of the Ring series has been really, really good so far. I think that this Von Eric episode, it might be the best wrestling documentary I've seen geared at a mainstream audience. If you get what I'm saying there, because it's like, because like obviously WWE documentaries are, you know, they want everybody to watch them, but they're more geared towards their fan base. Heroes of World Class was designed for a hardcore wrestling fan. But, I mean, this is something that if you didn't know about wrestling and you stumbled upon it, I mean, this was, like, gripping shit for an hour. I mean, it's tragic as hell, but, like, when you're watching it, you, you can't turn away. Because it's every time... It does have something of a happy, happy ending, too. Yeah, but, like, every time that you think, like, well, that's, that's as bad as it's going to get. Nope. <laughs> and then they turn the page. Yeah. It's oh, by like, the way, there's also this. Yeah. It's, um, oh my God. Yeah. So it's, um, again, well done work by the guys at Vice. And, um, we have an interview up on the, uh, 411 site actually right now with some of the producers of the series. And, um, give that a listen. But yeah, just, um, really good work. I'm really enjoying the series. And, uh, yeah, the Gina Hernandez one. Is again that's that's going to be one I'm very interested in too. Steve. You know the and you know I joked about earlier the one thing that is missing from this whole documentary, and we we saw Ross and Marshall von Eric the the next generation von Erichs and I don't know I don't know how their career is progressing. I I know they do matches here and there. I don't know if that's going to be a full time thing for them or whatever, but they forgot to mention the other third generation generation von Eric, the great Lacey von Eric. Oh. I knew you'd have to bring up Lacey. Absolutely, Lacey. Oh, she was she was spectacular, wasn't she? She was just a top-notch talent in every sense of the word. She was something. She definitely was something. <laughs> something. Uh, she was Carrie's daughter, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I, I was a big Lacey fan. What can I say? Yeah, nothing wrong with that. Wrong but with yeah, that. if if you guys have time, make sure you check out the Dark Side of the Ring series. It's uh it's been really, really good. Lots of lots of great insight. Like on this one, you had a uh, David Manning. It was it was da- it was mostly all Kevin Von Erich, but you had a uh, David Manning and Dave Meltzer on there too, and, and just uh, did some little stuff too. Yeah, and uh, th- the Dave Meltzer stuff comes up really good because this was during a time too that Dave lived in Texas during the yeah, world class yeah. stuff. That's right. <clears throat> so not only do you have like just Dave the historian talking about, but he also lived that era and um, saw the rise and fall of the family firsthand. So 
Yeah, again, they're um I think largely they're doing a really good job picking who's on these specials outside of the um Montreal one becoming about Cornet and Russo at the end. Yeah. Yeah, so you got Gino next week and then after that the fabulous Mula, which could be also all sorts of interesting depending on which way to go with that. Yeah, and um hopefully they they, they stayed with what they're doing for the rest of these because they've been they haven't shied away from a lot of stuff, you know. And they've uh, they've kind of hit the hard points. And um, apparently, there's a couple other ones they've done too. I think there's one on Dino Bravo and Chris Benoit that they did. And um, it was going to be one of those things that if the series does well, they'll eventually air. So hopefully, we'll see all the specials they aired. But um, I'm really enjoying the overall series so far. Yeah, we all know the Benoit story, but the the Dino Bravo story is also something that that would make amazing television. Yeah, just like the Gino one, I think too. So we'll um. We'll see how that all shakes up. But Stephen Cook, I thank you for returning and joining me. And uh, I think we're going to try to do some more of these Steam shows in the future. Yeah, I enjoyed it. I yeah, I think it's a good thing to do. I, I, I enjoy looking back at the past. I've always been a big history mark in real life and also in professional wrestling. I love that's the best thing about the network to me is that vault where I can go back and watch this old stuff. And uh, sometimes for the first time and sometimes for the second or third time. Yeah, that is that is a great benefit of the network. Just the fact that you can, you know, you can look up the final nitro, you can look up the first nitro, you can look up, you know, the last pay per view they did and all that shit. And it's it's pretty easy and it's all there. And uh, yeah, so uh, that's our look back at the uh, the final nitro and a little bit of talk of the Monday Night Wars. Again, you can follow the four one one on Wrestling Podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, YouTube, and of course the four one one site. Please make sure to subscribe and share us around. And if you have time, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. Thank you again, Steve Cook, and we will talk to you another time.